That's 1 John chapter 1, starting at verse 1. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands, concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest, and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. That's Matthew chapter 25, starting at verse 31. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another, as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you, or naked and close you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these my brothers, you did it to me. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not welcome me. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. And they also will answer, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry, or thirsty, or a stranger, or naked, or sick, or in prison, and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them, saying, Truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment but the righteous into eternal life. This afternoon, we come to the third of our four-part series on the topic of hell. 
And we've been considering the teaching of Jesus in Matthew's gospel, and we've noted that Jesus believes in hell, hell is real, and that hell involves the punishment of isolation from the goodness of God and pain. We've seen that real people go to hell. And today, our topic is hell that lasts forever. As I said, our method has been only to study the words of Jesus himself. The series is given the title, Hell from the Lips of Jesus. We stress that hell should only be spoken of with tears in the eyes. It is a stretching series, both for preacher and listener alike. Jesus wept over Jerusalem. Paul had unceasing anguish over his own people and their demise. Paul spoke with tears in his eyes, and it is with tears in the eyes and love in the heart that we speak of hell. This week I have read two of the most famous ever sermons on the reality of hell. One, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, preached in the 18th century, and the other by the same preacher a couple of years earlier, The Eternity of Hell's Torments. How dismal will it be to know assuredly that you never, never shall be delivered from dreadful despair. To have no hope when you shall wish that you might be turned into nothing, but shall have no hope of it. When you would rejoice if you might but have any relief, but shall have no hope of it. How sinking would it be to you to endure such pain as you felt in this world without any hopes and to know that you never should be delivered from it nor have one minute's rest? How much more to endure the vast weight of the wrath of God without hope? Well, we've considered Jesus' teaching from Matthew's Gospel, and we've looked at part one of the Gospel, the Sermon on the Mount, and then considered part two very briefly, and in both we find hell spoken of by Jesus. We've considered in depth in part three the judgment on Capernaum, Chorazin, and Bethsaida. This week, part five, and the so-called parable of the sheep and the goats. Before we get into part five, it is worth noting that in part four, Jesus speaks of hell on at least three occasions. And so in every section of Matthew's gospel, there is extensive warning from the lips of Jesus. And today we're in section five. Even here, talk of hell is not confined simply to the parable of the sheep and goats. Jesus speaks of weeping and gnashing of teeth on three other occasions. He speaks of outer darkness He speaks of the door being shut and of the dreadful verdict, I never knew you. So what can we say to the person who says Jesus doesn't speak of judgment and hell, and that's just Old Testament teaching? We can only say that such a person follows a different Jesus to the Jesus of the Bible, a fantasy Jesus of their own concoction, an imagined comfort blanket Jesus like the teddy they might take to bed to ward off frightening imaginations. For the rest of our time, the so-called parable of the sheep and goats, the glorious return of Jesus, the decisive division of Jesus, 
and the eternal judgment. The glorious return. Verse 31. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. That phrase, the Son of Man, is a title. It's Jesus' favorite title for himself. It's taken primarily from the book of Daniel. And there God gathers before one who is described as one like a Son of Man, all the nations, and they come for judgment. To him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. Here, Jesus tells us that the Son of Man will come in his glory and all the angels with him, and he will sit on his glorious throne. True, of course, to say that the Son of Man is enthroned already. At the end of the gospel, Jesus announces, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Paul tells us God seated Jesus at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above every rule and authority, power and dominion. And in the book of Revelation, we read that one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and golden sash, with hair white and eyes like a flame of fire, feet like burnished bronze, and a voice like the roar of many waters appeared. Jesus is enthroned already. I guess it's possible for us to have too small a view of Jesus. I grew up in the days when you could still make an appointment and actually see the manager of your local branch of a bank account. He might even be keen to help you, though I didn't find that to be the case myself. Some possibly have the view of Jesus like that, that he's like a kind of person we can book an appointment with in a moment of crisis, or Aladdin with a genie in a bottle coming on demand, or Harry in the Philosopher's Stone having his owl to call on in times of trouble. But Jesus is seated on his glorious throne. Jesus has been enthroned by his Father in heaven. Jesus will return with absolute authority to sit on the seat of judgment. And on that day we will see him as he is. We may have heard of the poem of W.E. Henley, Invictus, Unconquerable, Undefeated. My head is bloody and unbowed. It matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishment the scroll. I am the master of my fate, the captain of my soul. No. Henley has bought the oldest lie in the book, in fact, the second oldest. You shall not surely die. There will be no judgment, said the serpent to Adam and Eve in the garden the second oldest lie in the book, there will be judgment. God has set a day when he will judge the world by one man. He's given evidence of this by raising that man from the dead, the Lord Jesus Christ. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. The glorious return. The decisive division. The so-called parable catches this beautifully. Actually, I don't think it is a parable. If you read it carefully, Jesus is speaking about a real event. This isn't a story designed to picture 
an event. It is the event itself. The only element of imagery in the whole piece is Jesus separating out people as a shepherd separates out sheep from the goats. It's a simile, a metaphor. It's not strictly speaking a parable, but it is binary. Before him will be gathered all the nations and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats and he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on his left. There are only two options. People go either to left or to right. There is no gradation. It is immediate. There's no waiting chamber or correction center or place of reformation. It's one way. There is no return. And it's eternal. The imagery of sheep and goats is brilliant. At the end of each day, the flock of sheep and herd of goats that have been grazing together is sorted. I guess this is like the parable of the net in Matthew 13, where the fisherman lands the net on the beach and sorts the fish, good and bad. The wheat and the weeds sorts the harvest, fruitful and useless. And so a day is set and the play will end and Jesus will return and there will be a great division. And of course, the shepherd can tell at a glance which is which. It's obvious. I'm told they would do it simply by feel if it was dark. One one way, one the other. One one way, one the other. On what basis? Well, verse 37 speaks of the righteous. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you? or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? So verse 37 speaks of the righteous, those on his right. And verse 35 through 36 speaks of their acts of righteousness, to have given food and water to the Son of Man, to have offered hospitality, to have clothed and provided for the medical and physical needs of the Son of Man. And verse 37 through 38 leaves them perplexed, and Jesus answers their perplexity. Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. This has led many to suggest that the basis of the judgment and division lies in general good works, kindness and compassion to those less well-off than ourselves in this life, done by everybody, decent deeds, charitable acts, financial contributions, community action. An OAP invited to Christmas lunch, a gift to help a London child, pro bono work in Tower Hamlets, just love, mercy ministries. But that's not quite what Jesus is getting at. Look closely again at verse 40. Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these my brothers, you did it to me. Now this has to refer not simply to general good works done broadly to all of humanity by all humans, though such things are good, 
but rather to acts and deeds done by Christians to their Christian brothers and sisters. That has to be so, doesn't it? As you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, my brothers or sisters. And the term the least of these aligns with Jesus' favorite way of speaking of his disciples in Matthew's gospel. Repeatedly, he calls the disciples these little ones. So those who are brought to the eternal kingdom, notice, prepared from the foundation of the world for them, are those who have quite unselfconsciously, naturally, without a second thought, lined up with, served, associated selflessly, financially, in friendship, kindness, aid, physical and medical, with the people of the Lord Jesus. They are Christians. Those who go to the left, those who are told to depart into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels, they are those who have distanced themselves from the people of Jesus, who will have nothing to do with Jesus and his people, and who choose not to receive Jesus and line up with the people who follow Jesus. You see the basis of the judgment. The basis of the judgment is our relationship to Jesus and the way we then respond to Jesus and to the people who follow Jesus. And for those who will reject Jesus, have nothing to do with God, shut God out of their lives, will not acknowledge God, surrender to him, confess his name and follow him. Such ascent to eternal damnation. A number of years ago, the famous British interviewer, Jeremy Paxman, interviewed the wealthy businessman, Bill Gates. It was a fascinating interview. At one point, Paxman made a rather fatuous aside. He suggested that Gates need have no fear or concern or anxiety about meeting God on the last day as if God himself might be somewhat envious of the wealthy Bill Gates. But as far as Jesus is concerned, it doesn't matter how powerful we are, how prosperous, how popular, how prestigious. The stamp on our passport is immaterial. Our creed, color, race, religion is no bar. Our, our, our views even are of no consequence we will be summoned before Jesus in judgment. And whether we like it or not, believe it or not, or are ready for it or not, it will happen. This has to be right. If there is one supreme governor, one supreme creator, one supreme lord, one supreme god, there is one supreme ruler, one supreme judge. And at the last, when he comes in his glory, he will sit on his glorious throne and before him will be gathered all nations and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. 
it's worth pausing to consider just how serious rejection of God is. Each next breath given by him, each good gift allowed by him, every privilege and every provision come from him. The air we breathe, the food we eat, the friendship we enjoy, the job at which we work, the health we have been given. Rejection of him is an eternally significant affair. The final return of Jesus, the decisive decision and division of Jesus, the eternal end. Now you can see that Jesus speaks, we can see that Jesus speaks of an eternal end, both for those on the right and those on the left. Verse 34, then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Verse 41. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. Verse 45 and 46. Truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me, and these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. The question we need to ask now is, does eternal mean eternal? This is an old view, but from the 1980s, it became more popular once again. And a number of authors, Clark Pinnock, a gentleman named E.W. Fudge, Philip Edgecombe Humes, and even the great John Stott began to adopt it. And more recently, some with far less rigor, people like Rob Bell in his book, Love Wins, have also adopted a position of what is known as annihilationism or conditional immortality. Annihilationism suggests that on Judgment Day, those on the left will quite simply be obliterated. Hence, annihilationism. They'll be annihilated. Conditional immortality suggests that our souls are not by nature immortal and that only those who have trusted Jesus will rise to immortality. Now, there are varying degrees of each of those views, but that's the essence of it. And these views, though they've been around for a very long time indeed, indeed, one of Jonathan Edwards' key sermons was against annihilationism, They've risen to the fore to a degree in the last 40 years. And the argument is made both that the word translated eternal does not necessarily carry the sense or implication of endlessness and that it would be unjust or unworthy of God to consign a person to endless punishment in hell. The word eternal. Strictly speaking, the word ionos, eternal, which we translate as eternal, means literally belonging to the age to come. In that sense, John Stott and others are right. But repeatedly, when Jesus speaks of hell in detail, here in Matthew's Gospel, 
it comes with a sense of endlessness. Now, these are weighty matters. John Stott was a mighty hero in the evangelical world. My predecessor, Dick Lucas, refers to him as my mentor. Perhaps most helpfully, a gentleman called J.I. Packer, in an article you can easily Google, Evangelical Annihilationism in Review, which I've referenced on the bottom of your sheet there, tackles John Stott. They were great friends. He raises the following points. Jesus speaks repeatedly of weeping and gnashing of teeth. Only those who exist can weep and express frustration and pain. Nowhere in the Bible does death signify simply extinction. In the book of Revelation, we read the smoke of their torment rises forever. You cannot have smoke without fire. With smoke rising forever, there must be a corresponding endless source. Those consigned to hell are described as having no rest day or night, and repeatedly those who are sent to hell are described as being shut out away from the Lord and from the glory of his might. Only those who exist can be shut out or have no rest. Most conclusively for me, in an article I've not referenced there, I've got it hidden away somewhere in my study back at home, and I haven't managed to look it out. Jim Packer, J.I. Packer, references verse 46, and these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. And Packer has this phrase, he says, there is a self-conscious parallelism between the eternal life and the eternal punishment. The other article I've mentioned there, Leon Morris, This Dreadful Harvest, the more meaning we put into eternal life, the more meaning we must put into eternal punishment. The two are used in parallel. Is it fair? I suppose it depends how serious we consider sin to be. It depends what we understand about the ongoing nature of rebellion beyond the grave. It depends on what we understand to be the need for retribution. There's a difference between one kind of offense and another. We all know that's true. I walk across the street, I slap you in the face. That is a simple matter of assault. I walk into the CEO's office, I slap her in the face. That's more serious. I find myself in court, I jump from the dock, rise onto the judge's platform and slap him in the face, that is really very serious indeed. I place myself in the crowd at a major national civil event as the prime minister, president, monarch are passing. I jump out from the crowd and slap them in the face. That'll go down in history. Edward Donnelly, I recommend you getting this if you want to read further on it, Heaven and Hell, the biblical teaching on the doctrine, uses the example, it's rather graphic, I'm sorry about this, of chopping up a worm 
chopping up a small animal and dismembering a child. There are varying degrees of crime. Sin is rebellion against the creator. Sin is shaking my fist at the eternal, everlasting God. Sin is refusing to acknowledge Jesus. And there's no instance anywhere where the level of sentence is tied to the duration of offense. How long does it take to murder a person? Seconds? How long in prison? A lifetime? And there's no indication anywhere that a person ceases to sin in hell or that the resurrection to judgment changes a person's character And there's every reason to suppose that their rebellion and refusal to repent continues into eternity. Certainly the rich man in the story of the rich man and Lazarus shows no indication of any change. And is it not right that punishment be made for wrong simply because it's wrong? Our time is up. Let me conclude by reading from Donnelly's outstanding chapter on everlasting destruction. He speaks about the reality of hell. Absolute poverty. To perish means that we as beings will become ever more degraded, more contemptible, more lonely... We will be surrounded by devils and by the damned and wicked humans. They will hate us. We will hate them. Everything good in us will be taken away. Everything bad let loose. Absolute poverty. Agonizing pain. Their worm does not die. The fire is not quenched. The undying worm is something foul, endlessly gnawing at hell's inhabitants, eating at them continually, giving them no rest. This probably refers to the conscience, which should have been the sinner's curb on earth and becomes the whip that will lash his soul in hell. Why didn't I listen? Why didn't I take advantage of all those opportunities? It's my own fault. Angry presence. Yet God is close to those in hell because he's present there in his anger. Those who are in hell will see God in his holy fury. They will be compelled to gaze at their judge, unable to shut their eyes. The sight of him intolerably painful will be their condemnation and their punishment. I'm going to lead us in prayer. We praise you, our Father in heaven, that you so loved the world that you gave your only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish. We praise you that there is hope now left to us, and we pray that we will be those who believe these things to the very core of our being and share them with an urgency and a concern that matches your own. In Jesus' name, amen.